Welcome to the Everyday Innovator podcast for product managers, leaders, and innovators. Your host is Chad McAllister, helping you become a product master. Listen and get ready for higher performance, for the doctor is in. Hi, this is Chad, and this is where product leaders and managers make their move to product masters, learning practical knowledge that leads to more influence and confidence so you'll create products customers love. InnoSight is an innovation management consultancy, which was founded by Clayton Christensen and Mark Johnson. Mark has a new toolkit for visionary thinking that leads to breakthrough growth, which he writes about in his book, Lead from the Future. Great name. The foundation of the toolkit is future back thinking, in which we talk about. So you get all the insights into how you really do future back thinking and that how that helps you lead to breakthrough growth. And as always, we take the notes for you. The notes are a great way to go back and review key points and also share the information easily with colleagues. You'll find all the key insights from the discussion with Mark at theeverydayinnovator.com slash 279. And also, we've been taking a bonus question in these interviews, and we write about that bonus question in the show notes. You can't find the answer anywhere else. The bonus question for this discussion was, what steps does an organization need to take to put future back thinking into action? Mark shared the answer, and we wrote about that in the summary of the show notes here. That's the everydayinnovator.com slash 279. Now, let's talk with Mark. Mark, thanks for joining the Everyday Innovators. Thank you, Chad. Great to be here. I'm glad you can be with us because I'm looking forward to uh, what I think is a really important topic for us. In the past, you have addressed uh, information on business models, a lot of meat there, and now uh, a new book that is just out, Lead from the Future. Uh, and I like this idea very much. We'll talk about what that idea is in just a moment. But I came across you many years ago, actually, because you're a co-founder of InnoSight. So mm-hmm. we've never had the pleasure to meet before, but um, I, I appreciate companies that are helping organizations with innovation, and uh, there's lots of help needed there. And InnoSight has a fascinating background because you and Clay Christensen co-founded that. And Clay, um, I think, is was some uh, like a virtual mentor to many of us. Yeah. Uh, I'm actually getting a little choked up about this. Um, yeah. Because I, I never had the pleasure of meeting him. Very, I tried to invite him to be on the podcast to understand schedule and health were, were issues there. Mm-hmm. But um, he, he did so much to contribute to what we're doing. And you guys co-founded this company together. Since we lost him earlier this year uh, to leukemia, I, I'm wondering if you could just start with sharing uh, what that experience was like and how you kind of remember him. Well, I appreciate you asking the question, Chad, because we uh, we came up on our 20th uh, anniversary of Innocite of co-founding the firm together, January of, of 2000, and he passed in January of 2020. Um, I just, I, I wouldn't even know where to begin in some ways. I mean, he personally impacted my life professionally. Um, he was, as you uh, mentioned, to be a mentor, to virtual mentor. I mean, he was a mentor to me. He was a colleague. He was a friend. Um, you know, he was just an intellectual giant. Giant, And more important than anything else, he was um, just a, a man of great humanity. Um, and, you know, when he... Uh, really got sick in January. I mean, he had been dealing, as you said, with cancer, with leukemia for a while, but he really took a turn for the worse in the early part of the year. Um, and so it wasn't 
a surprise in his passing, but it was still incredibly difficult to to have lost a friend when we had been through so much together. Um, and it was clearly some grieving, but what was amazing was that that grief um, pretty quickly was overcome, was overtaken by gratitude. And I didn't expect how much gratitude just started to fill my heart and and how much it really helped mitigate the grief and made me feel this this positive feeling about him of how much he not only had impacted my life, but how he had impacted so many lives. And, you know, I was just able to anchor on that and um, really move sort of a sad period into a period of celebration. You know, as I speak to you now, it almost feels in some ways celebratory about, you know, honoring the man and his goodness and his contributions and and everything else. So I guess that's what I would say, you know, just sort of on reflection is I think the operative word for me is has been lots of gratitude and continue to have that gratitude as we speak. Mm-hmm. He made so many contributions for us as, as innovators, as product managers uh, through his books and writings and really thought leadership, especially originally with uh, disruptive innovation and what that meant and how do, you, how do you go about solving some of those problems, right? How do you address it? Absolutely. Um, I appreciate you sharing that. I've had the pleasure of talking with a couple of people who have worked with him quite a bit. And every, every, the first thing is always, you know, you said his humanity, right? And um, impacted you beyond the professional sector. Um, because the, what people lead with is the impact he had personally on them, right? That he was just yes. a very kind, humble person. And um, I, I think we can all use some of that, uh, you know, and think about Absolutely. impact on others. So. And Thank just so to much. have that, well, sure. And I was just going to say the other thing, to, since you you were talking about, uh, you know, his kindness and his hum- humility, that uh, it didn't matter whether you were a top executive of a corporation or a, or a government leader. I mean, he met with uh, very, very, pe- very, very famous people and people of high station in life. But he also would just uh, stop by in our offices and talk to uh, somebody who was an analyst who just joined the firm. And he treated those people the same way that he would treat somebody of, of great fame. Mm-hmm. Yeah, good qualities. So, yeah. Uh, th- thankfully, his thoughts live on through the books and writings and so much to learn still. So it's a great foundation for innovators. So I want to talk about one of your contributions also to this innovation body of knowledge and coming out of... Uh, now, uh, I didn't realize it's been that long. You said 20 years you know, mm-hmm. there at InnoSight. Um, but I appreciate, you know, sometimes people will write me and say, well, gosh, you, you talk to a lot of people that have books. Um, and I don't know if that's actually true or not. I talk to a lot of people and some of them have books. Mm-hmm. Um, but not. I, I don't talk to just people that are, are authors. I, I talk to people that wrote a book based on either really credible research or lots of good practitioner experience. Mm-hmm. Um, and InnoSight has that in ACEs, uh, helping so many organizations, and you get to see a lot of different problems, and so you bring depth of experience to this. Yeah. We're going to be talking about strategy aspects and developing strategy. Mm-hmm. thought we should start with what is wrong with the, the standard strategy picture, right? When an organization says, hey, we're going to make our strategic plan, they're usually looking out three to five years is kind of a sweet spot. Some are shorter, some are longer. Um, what, what, what have you seen that's wrong with that approach? Well, I think um, strategy and strategic planning, when it comes to organizations that are trying to develop breakthrough innovations, that are trying to fill a growth gap or 
think about how they need to transform. Traditional strategy is helpful in being able to continue to perpetuate the core organization, and it's really driven off of sort of the base of core business. And that can work. Um, and, and to your point, it can be more on the short-term side, and it can actually be quite mechanistic, almost like a budgeting, you know, sort of a veter- very regimented planning organization. But when it comes to trying to create that breakthrough product or that new business model or being able to, like I said, overall transform the organization, the the strategic planning is too anchored in taking the present day norms and uh, process and sort of paradigm and extrapolating and moving that forward into the future. You know, there's a famous quote about from Alfred Chand- Chandler, a business historian at Harvard Business School, who said decades ago, don't let structure dictate strategy. So sometimes the strategy needs to be broken free from the way things are assumed to work today. And that to me, it's not that strategy per se is, is, is wrong or broken. It's just that the current present forward type strategy has its limitations. And we have to recognize that it's going to be about toward incremental innovation or towards perpetuating the way things work today in a general sense. It's not going to be about uh, transformative or step change kind of moves if we use a traditional strategic planning process um, as part of the effort. Okay. So t- two things I want to go back on there. We'll t- talk about this, uh, you know, kind of going from now forward, thinking on strategy. Mm-hmm. Um, Alpha Challenge quote that you mentioned um, I, I think it's easy to sometimes lose track that all these things are really interconnected, that, you know, we're, we're working with a system. Yes. And the structure of the organization should be built to reflect the strategy. And that yes. means it's limiting the strategy or it's enabling it. Yeah. We got culture in there and we got the mission and vision and all these things that work together. Yeah. Um, and, and we have to keep that in mind. Um, we might get back to that in a moment. I don't know if you want to comment on that now, but there's a system aspect there. Well, I I think we're in some ways dealing with a little bit of, I would call it a crisis or an epidemic because so many organizations, while their core organization can continue to provide um, success for them and cash flow and all the things they need to thrive, it's insufficient for mo- many, many organizations, insufficient to continue to sustain long-term growth. So you have to get beyond the core. You have to be able to think about the white space. And a traditional strategic planning process, by definition, is going to not, uh, it's not going to prioritize, it's not going to have an effective way to include the ability to plant those seeds for the future the same way as if you if you think and plan from the future back, in addition to using traditional annual strategic planning. I'm interrupting the interview to share something really important. We'll get back to the discussion in just a minute, but I want you to know about an extraordinary system called the Rapid Product Mastery, or RPM experience. In just nine weeks, you can have a higher performing product team, meeting only 75 minutes a week with no travel required. One product leader, after trying all the typical training workshops, turned to the RPM experience to get real change for his team. He said that this is the only training that provides an integrated product management perspective. It did exactly what I needed it to do. 
If you have a group of 5 to 14 product professionals, learn how you too can have a high-performing team in just 9 weeks, 75 minutes a week, without travel. This is the system created by Chad, based on his experience working as a product leader, coaching several organizations, and deeply studying innovation during his PhD work. Get the guide for yourself at theeverydayinnovator.com slash RPM. Okay, so the traditional strategic approach around our core is thinking, you know, what are we going to do now into some time frame? And you've used yeah. this phrase a couple of times, future back. Um, so to describe this very different way of looking at coming up with strategy from the future back. Yeah, well, I would break future back into two parts. One is it's a way of thinking. And the second, it's a process. Starting with the process, it is what it sounds. You would plan from the future. And I like to put it as a five to 10 year horizon for most organizations because usually that's a horizon that goes back past traditional planning and forecasting. It's an area that uh, there's less noise. <laughs> you know, there's less going on about the here and now. So it's a, it's a place to be thoughtful and it's a place to start to think about potential points of inflection. So the process piece is as it sounds, it's begin, it's right to left, you know, it's about taking that future view, not just of the environment, but of a portfolio of businesses. So it's not just envisioning in some fancy statement what that future is about. It's literally defining what's the future of the core adjacent and new growth businesses, and then incrementing backwards, walking back to determine uh, what kinds of initiatives need to get started today. That's one piece, you know, and there's a lot more process-wise that I talk about in the book, but it's also important in the way of thinking. And the way of thinking is contrast, you know, towards the kind of execute and operate and analytically driven way we think in the everyday driving our core business, which is very appropriate. The kind of thinking for future back as you put yourself in the future is, is to get the past and the here and now for the moment out of the equation. So it's clean sheet thinking. It's systems thinking, as you pointed earlier, and being prepared to think systematically in a different way that the pieces that might come together in the ecosystem may be envisioned in a wholly different way. It's about what is the art of the possible, what could be as opposed to what is. So it's all the kind of techniques from a thought process point of view that get us out of um, being stuck in a existing orthodoxy or paradigm. But I think you got to put in place the thinking and the process to be able to properly define what we're, we're talking about with future back. And one last point, just to bring it home, back to this thinking, maybe process combined, is instead of thinking about it as operate and execute and getting data and then making decisions, this is a learning loop type approach where you explore uh, kind of into the future. And so you're very exploratory and diverge before you converge. You become very design thinking oriented to then envision and envision the same way that we talk about in the, in the context of design thinking. And then from the walk back, you become very experimentally oriented or discovery oriented by defining the kinds of get started initiatives that you can test and learn with 
to validate or invalidate it along the way, whether this vision that you've created in this much more deliberate sense is coming to fruition or these insights help you make some adjustments to the way the vision, because that's the other important piece of this future back. It's very iterative. It's very much about revisiting the vision and revisiting the initiatives that get you to that vision. Okay. That was fantastic. I love the two big pillars here, right? We, we have the thinking element of this. We need to think a little bit differently. Um, and then also the process element. And one thing that's going on in our, our developed organizations that, you know, they're growing, they're becoming stable, I'll say. Um, they have some history behind them. They, they do tend to focus on that core and mm-hmm. things that, you know, they have to get good at operational excellence. Because yes. That's how they continue making money. In time, that kind of drives out people like you and I that tend to look at things a little bit differently and say, well, that's great, but what can we do to prepare for the future? Right. right? And, and they kind of drive out that thinking. So the thinking piece is important to bring back in and then the process. Yeah. Um, and can this, I just say, especially, yeah. you know, they'll, especially for the leadership team, because they'll say, oh, well, we have people that are thinking this way in our innovation team or in our R&D group. And that's fine. And that's what their charter is. And that maybe has been a way of doing things for a very long time. But what I'm proposing is that the leadership team, to your point, they still have to operate and execute the business and they have to do Six Sigma and they have to drive efficiencies, but they need to carve out 10%, maybe up to 20% of their time to engage like their innovation teams to be able to explore and envision to discover at a at an enterprise level to plan for the future. Okay. That's a topic all by itself that we might have to explore yeah. on another episode. Um, okay. But, and, and just to l- let me wrap it up yeah. in just a moment and because um, I want to derail from the processor too. But um, exec- this is so important for executive teams because um, CEOs and executive teams in general, uh, my, my experience, not speaking for anyone else, um, they, they typically don't have a good handle on how innovation actually works and how it could work in their organization. Right. And asking them to carve out that time would be magical, and I don't know how you do it. Um, so we, we might have to explore the how you do it part um, sure. later. Yeah. Um, so the, the thinking here is important, that we're, we're thinking not just operationally, we are thinking about the future. Let's walk through the process a bit, and I suspect we'll pull in the thinking a little bit as we go. Uh, th- this sounds like, um, you, you know, like there is a very legitimate science fiction exercise some companies do mm-hmm. to say, well, right. let, let's let's write a story of what yeah. the ten years is going to be. You know, we're living ten years in the future. What does that look like? Where do you start with this? How, how do you put a stake in the ground and say, okay, what is the world like in five or in ten years? Yeah, and how are we going to play in it? Yeah. Well, you know, let, let me back up just one step, which uh, my experience have found with clients is just the the idea, the the exercise to figure out how far out in the future you should go that gets to a place of discomfort because uh, we want to be in a place that's uncomfortable. We want to be in a place that is going to capture um, the convergence of a set of trends to be able to say that the world may work in a whole different way. So how do you take a bunch of macroeconomic trends, technology trends, customer trends, and think far enough out in the future where uh, you know, it's a place where there could be some, I like to say, early fault lines or faint signals that suggest 
that the whole ecosystem could be different. And we have found having a conversation about, is it seven years out? Is it nine years out? Is it 12 years out? Um, is an important piece to getting getting people started because just in the exercise of being able to define that time horizon of where you're going to really spend time in conversation um, allows a lot of things to be understood in a way that hadn't been un understood before. So I would say first step is to define the right time horizon. One other point that's important that, that I think defines the time horizon in a very mechanical or, um, you know, more uh, tangible way is uh, what is the growth aspiration? So define a time horizon and also say set the goal. And we like to talk about it uh, as financially as long-term top-line growth. Because if you have that conversation, then you can also begin to have a conversation about how in an honest conversation, again, it has to include the leadership team is how viable is the core business to be able to attain that growth over eight, 10, or 12 years? Uh, because as we know, so many things commoditize and get disrupted by non-traditional competitors and so forth. You have a really healthy conversation of whether the core business truly can sustain that four to five or six or 7% CAGR. And after you've understood that, then you can actually start having a discussion about a true growth gap. And that growth gap can be very galvanizing to the organization and to the leadership to say, well, how are we going to fill that gap? If we keep just trying to increment off our base, um, that's not going to do it. So how do we get beyond to think about the new and different uh, to fill that gap? So maybe I'll stop there, but that's sort of in a set of different things that I think has been powerful for us to really get uh, the leadership started in talking about the future and, and, and understanding that the future matters. Okay, so the, the growth gap part of that, I can see as being really a catalyst for helping to yeah. say, okay, we need to take action here because we, we look out with our current products and how we can do new versions of those. And, you know, five years from now, we're not making revenue, right? So um, right. Th that can be really motivating. Um, what are you bringing together, though, to try to identify, you know, the, like the discussion seven, nine, 12 years, uh, what are these macro forces that might be taking shape? How do you just look into that to start with? You know, it's what, what kind of research is done to bring those things into play. And mm -hmm. the organization may be aware of some of them, right? I, I did a past episode with Deluxe Checks, and their innovation was the checkbook. So the, the paper checkbook, <laughs> 105 years ago, that was right. their thing. Um, we're not using too many checks these days. Right. right, and so they went through an exercise and came up with something really cool. Um, but but how do you put together the things impacting your industry, your market, to look at that? Well, I mean, some of it then. Now that we've added this very deliberate long-term time horizon, elements of traditional strategy and strategic planning do come into play. So you still look at trends. Um, you're going to look at trends of sort of large industrial, you know, sort of industry-specific trends, maybe even macro trends, and then uh, sort of company, company market-specific trends. So trends still play a big role. I would say, though, it is with a twist in that to bring the conversation alive about, say, five to 10 years out, um, 
the trend should be in service to the question, where is the customer going? You know, where is the customer going to be in that five to 10 year horizon? I talk about in the book, and you probably heard it from Clay and some of our work, what's the job to be done? Um, what job are is, is she trying to get that customer trying to get done in her life? What's going to be most important and least satisfied in that future based on the circumstance of these unfolding trends. And so what you want to try to do is use trends in service to where the value pools, the value that's going to be needed for where customers are going to be in that environment and have a conversation there. And by having that conversation, then you can start to be able to think about the possibility for major areas of opportunity to address what those customers' needs will be in the future. So it's, as you said, it's a systems problem. It's a, it's a, it's a creative and messy process of trying to take trends and synthesize that with the most important trend, which is customer jobs to be done or needs, and bringing that together. And then if there's a lot of uncertainty about five to 10 years out, and by the way, there's not as much uncertainty often as the case that one might think. You know, the, the bad rap that five to 10 years gets is that nobody can predict out there. But actually, there's a lot more um, confidence in these exercises than you'd think. It's not a photograph, we like to say, but it's an impressionist painting. And most of the people that engage in this exercise feel like they really have uh, a compelling impressionist painting they can get behind. But I was going to say the last piece of this exercise is if the uncertainty is very high, then you can pull out the playbook of scenario planning and start talking about different scenarios, again, as part of the discussion to develop a set of insights. Because that's all we're trying to do is to get leadership teams and others to come up with new insights about the way the world might work in the future and how and the implications of that and what they're going to do about it. Mm-hmm that they wouldn't be having if they never spent any time out in that five to 10 year horizon. And, and you mentioned before the core adjacent and new growth areas. Um, and so it sounded to me like we're putting that into that context a little bit. Yeah. And so we, we think out about what the world is going to look like in, in our part of the world, our, our industry uh, in a time frame. And then that should back up to, okay, given that that's what we expect, or at least there's some scenarios there, what might be the experiments that we need to start doing now? What might be the new things we need to learn about? And are you structuring those then? And you know, what are the things that support our core operations? What are the things that we can expand into pretty easily? What are the things that someone might not expect us to do, but would be new growth that we could do? Yes, no, absolutely. It's, it's one-to-one, but it's in particular, the experiments tend to be um, biased towards the new growth. And they're, they're experiments to kind of spend a little to learn a lot, plant a few seeds, because those ones you want to incubate and develop over time because they have the greatest uncertainty. We find that there are not as many experiments in the adjacent, but there are more experiments in the adjacent than the core. The core tends to be more about continuing to do the present forward stuff with just a validation or a check on what it might look like in the future, but there doesn't tend to be like some new ha- new aha core 
initiatives that would come out of this future back exercise, they would more come out of the traditional budgeting and planning. Um, so, so that's really where the one-to-one happens is more on the new and different. But absent doing this, you know, we find sometimes uh, we call it the Hail Mary problem is companies feel like they got to be doing something new and different. So they place a couple big bets on a major initiative outside their core, but there's nothing really driving the purpose for what they're doing it other than some reasons that say, yeah, we've got some capabilities that make sense for us to go do it. Yeah. And sometimes those work out and sometimes they're, they're big flops. And Exactly. <laughs> um, okay. So lots of great details here. I, I think, you know, I hope people get the book to find out more about this, this thinking and the process, but everyone listening to this now, everyday innovators, you can walk away just with this as a tool in your toolbox. And next time you have a group meeting and you're stuck on thoughts, say, well, let's think about what, 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 if we were 10 years into the future, how would that impact what we're doing now? Yeah. Uh, and I, I very much appreciate that tool. Do you have an example of an organization that you've worked with or you've seen use this, uh, you know, forward back kind of thinking? Uh, I put that backwards. You know, you use the future back thinking um, yeah. that has really made a difference to them. Well, I'll give you, uh, if I can do this quickly, because I think it's worth just a little bit of a comparison, I'll give you three quick examples. Um, one is we didn't work with, but it's just so powerful and it was so intuitive and natural that I'd be remiss to not mention it. And of course, I've mentioned it in the book. I mean, you know, Apple is overdone. Um, but what is not understood that well is that when Steve Jobs came back to Apple in the late 90s, it was only a couple of years later that in effect, he did future back with his top lieutenants. It was the dot-com bubble, computers were commoditizing, and he took his top 100 lieutenants and they looked out 10 years to 2010. They literally did that. And by doing that and spending time in that 10-year future, they imagined an adjacency, which they called, and Walter Isaacson actually wrote at length about this in his biography, Steve Jobs' biography, the digital hub strategy, which basically the computer became the hub for a bunch of elect consumer electronics products where the computer and the microprocessor power enabled these devices as as opposed to the devices having to have the microprocessing uh, power in them. And it made it much more elegant in terms of the way that these products would work. And then he went into a white space or a brand new growth area by saying, we'll actually create these consumer products ourselves. And by doing that, transformed not one, but many, many industries and got themselves to basically get out of just being computers, but get into the music industry and uh, telephony and so forth. And the walk back was walking back this digital hub vision of 2010 to start with the iPod, the iTunes, the iPhone, and the iPad. So there's a real simple one. We had nothing to do with it. I'm not prescribing that. He went through a very specific process, but the concept of future back was alive and well there. A specific client that we've worked with, you know, one, um, let me share just one that I think is a powerful insight. We worked with a top leadership of an automotive company and um, they had a perspective, a point of view about batteries and electric vehicles um, that was, you know, there's not a great consumer pull, um, will be defined by regulation. Um, 
will be fast followers. And as they went through this process and they looked out 10 years and started to have conversations about the convergence of various technologies to take battery and electrification to the next level, what the competition would be doing 10 years from now, um, what kind of business models would be created? Uh, you know, how does this impact, you know, what was the crossover curve where electrification per mile would be cheaper than gas? They put that all together and they had a profound change in their mindset and said, we actually have to be much more proactive in the way we develop a portfolio of electric vehicles and the technologies behind it. And it completely shifted their investment and their effort. And it, only could come about by spending time in the future and walking it back. The final example, which is an example I describe at length, is Johnson & Johnson and their pharmaceuticals division, which, long story short, is they made the move to not just make traditional pharmaceutical products that are for the treatment of diseases through the pill. They actually created a vision by looking out 12 years in the future, that would be about disease interception and possibly prevention. And if you could imagine trying to intercept a disease and prevent it before it actually happens, from a practical business model point of sense, could be very difficult to figure out how you're going to get paid for things that never happened. Um, but long story short is they were able to see 12 years out in the future about a convergence of a whole bunch of medical technologies, both on the device side and the biomedical side and the, um, uh, you know, sort of biosensors and all kinds of things that would come together that they felt that this is going to be something that absolutely is going to happen. And if they didn't do something about it, number one, it would be, um, it would almost be criminal because this is an opportunity to save people's lives. And second of all, just from a business standpoint, someone else would do it and, um, and disrupt them. So by being able to look out in the future and envision a world without disease and then imagine what are the kinds of opportunities that they could address and then walk back to what actually is happening today, their first initiative, which is lung cancer and um, intercepting people that are vulnerable or susceptible to lung cancer and having ways to intercept the process of that happening before it actually even gets to stage one cancer uh, is, is a part and parcel absolutely was done by thinking and planning from the future back. That's excellent. This idea of being able to envision what that future is and then how does that impact us? Um, sometimes we, we, and I'm sure I've said this too, it's really hard to uh, figure out who's going to be disrupting you and what that disruption is going to be. But yep. this is a, a useful tool to say, well, if, if the future looks like, you know, as we envision in 10 years, we can see what disruptions are likely coming, or at least in our scenarios. Absolutely. Um, start taking action. And that's an inspiring message about what J&J &J is doing too. Um, I, I look forward to better health options. <laughs> yes, we all do. You're <laughs> <laughs> very good. Okay, thank you so much for those examples. Uh, as everyone knows that listens, I love innovation quotes. What did you bring for us? And uh, tell us why that one's important to you. Well, it won't be a surprise since uh, my passion is, is really um, moving forward with this notion of future back thinking and process and 
planning right to left and so forth. So my quote is from Steve Jobs from Apple, who said, you cannot connect the dots looking forward. You can only connect them looking backwards. And that is the poster child quote for what I'm trying to uh, encourage organizations to do more of with future back thinking and process. Yeah. And you're using it not in the quarterback, you know, hindsight kind of, you know, the Monday morning quarterback uh, hindsight approach, but right. um, h- how can we uh, create our future by yes. first envisioning it and then thinking backwards? That's a great point, Chad. I, I probably have pivoted on that quote uh, because it's a good point. One is you could, you could look backwards to to really learn lessons of life, right? As you look backwards in your your life, but you can also repurpose that quote, as you said, to say, if you put yourself out 10 years in the future and you spend time in it, and then you actually walk backwards or look backwards, the kind of insights you get are are can be transformative and can be life-changing for the organization and for the individual. Yeah, that's very good. Okay, yeah. so for people that want to find out more about your work, Mark, what Enosite does, the resources you have, and of course, the book that we've been talking about, Lead from the Future, How to Turn Visionary Thinking into Breakthrough Growth, uh, where's a good place to get all that done? Well, um, you know, the easiest is uh, probably, and I like to make things easy, you can email me directly at uh, mjohnson at innosite.com. Or you could visit our website, www.innocite.com. And of course, um, the book is available for pre-order and any retail outlet, uh, especially most go to Amazon, but it's listed on amazon.com. Excellent. And by the time Everyday Innovators, I think you're listening to this, I think you'll be able to just order it and get it in probably one or two days via Prime. So that would be great. Mark, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate this new tool that uh, can help us think about a different way of looking at strategy. Thank you, Chad. Thanks so much for listening. This is where product leaders and managers make their move to product master, learning practical knowledge that leads to more influence and confidence so you'll create products customers love. Find that written discussion, including the bonus question. What is that bonus question? We asked Mark, what steps does an organization need to take to put future back thinking into action? And he shared that, and it's in the written summary at theeverydayinnovator.com slash 279. Keep innovating. Thank you for listening to The Everyday Innovator, which teaches product managers to become product masters. For more resources, please visit theeverydayinnovator.com.